With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mmm. Yeah. It's always soccer in Philadelphia, and life is good because your town, your team, your Philadelphia Union have made it to the semifinals of the MLS's back tournament. I'm on my third beer of the evening on a Sunday night, and I've got a special guest joining me on the phone, a former Philadelphia Union player, somebody I've been meaning to get on the show for a long time, and we're happy that he can now join us now that he is officially retired. It's Mr. Michael LaHood. Mike, what's good, man? Thanks for having me on the show. Just hanging out. Drinking my special edition glass of water in my Ninja Turtles mug <laughs> and living my best life. I know I'm shocked, man. I had to um, I had to pinch myself. I'm actually kind of embarrassed because I went on Twitter um, the other day, and it's not the first time I've been wrong on Twitter. Definitely not the first time. But uh, you know, I saw the Philadelphia Union versus Kansas City, and I was like, ah, you know, I think the Union are playing really well, but Kansas City's a tough team. They've won a lot of stuff. They've got veterans on that team. They got guys who know what they're doing. Maybe a cagey kind of one nothing, one one kind of thing. I thought it was going to be 1-1 uh, going into penalties, and then I thought maybe like a 5-4 penalty. I don't know if that was me being Negadelphia picking uh, Kansas City to go 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 through on penalties, but the Philadelphia Union came out and they won 3-1, to one, uh, blitzed them on a couple of counterattacks, looked like Barcelona on another goal. Um, this is not your, your grandmother's Philadelphia Union, which has been great for us in, the, in, the, in Philadelphia. I'm wondering how you see it as a, as a former player now. I love this Philadelphia Union team. T-word team. There's no megastars. Everyone steps up, and it was a team win. My favorite player from that game, everyone talks about Brandon Aronson. He's a star in the making, but I love Montero. Mm-hmm. He, his ability to keep possession, he covers so much ground. And I think you talked about it. You compared him to a former Union teammate of mine, Vincent Nagara more mobile version of Vincent, but clever player and rewarded the team and himself with the first goal. But mm-hmm. loved the performance and something that's huge for the club and for the city and the city build, building off of. We, um, I had Matt the George on last week and we were talking about the concept of like, um, you know, we always laugh because in Philly, like the first, whenever somebody is traded to Philadelphia, a new player comes to Philadelphia, we always ask them, oh, the fans, what do you know about the fans here? Because we're so hardcore and we care so much about sports, you know, and you always hear the blue collar, lunch pail carrying. I mean, hell, the, the graphic for this podcast is a snake uh, wearing a hard hat, right? It's like a cliche thing that we wear out. But the funny thing is that that's exactly what this team is. Like, there are no stars. You know, they play a team game. Yeah. You know, back back in yeah. the day, it was you needed all 11 guys to play well to win a game, and now you can have one guy have an off night, another guy have an off night. But they really do play that sort of team-pressing Red Bull-style Liverpool-Dortmund kind of kind of game. And uh, my, my take has always been that it just kind of fits more of what they are now. I mean, does it? don't you, don't you think it just sort of is, is more of a – a model for what this team is and how much money they spend and their philosophy to, to player personnel? Absolutely. What I saw in this Kansas City game, they played with freedom. They played with almost 
everything you want to see in a big game. Patience when they need to have it. Creativity. But every goal, you saw deep-lying runs. You saw guys tracking back, fighting for one another. And, man, I, I love dancing. I love to see people dance. Cue the dance music. Give Sergio Santos the ball. <laughs> He's a man on fire right now. He dances. We all dance. Hopefully, the club will be dancing in the finals and lifting up this trophy. But you ticked it. You know, you, you, everything you said checked all their boxes. The really unique thing for me that I'd like to see them change is managing the game in the second half. Yeah. Holding Casey scored a goal. I think, or I think it was Russell that scored uh, that goal that got called offside. Yep. And Polito hits the post. If that becomes 3 2, now it's a little bit scarier of a game, and Kansas City is a character team. But when you have Andre Blake as your goalkeeper, goalkeepers come up with big saves in big games. And he, for me, has been the best goalkeeper in this tournament. And I hope that continues. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, for sure, he would go into my best 11 uh, if, if we were doing a, you know, in the semi, as far as the semifinals right now, if we were putting together best 11 for the tournament, Andre would definitely go in it. I think Ray has been really good. Um, yeah, Jamiro, to your point, you know, it's interesting, yeah, because we were when we were trying to set this show up, um, we were uh, texting back and forth and we were talking about the Jamiro um, and Vince comparison. It, it's interesting because they have, um, you know, you know, Jim played and when you were there, obviously, Jim played four, yeah. two, four, two, three, one for years. And that's what they did, you know, from Jim through yeah. Ernie until Ernst came here and they changed to this, you know, four, four, two diamond or four, three, one, two, whatever you want to call it. And, um, you know, it's just interesting because now they now they're playing without wingers, but they have guys like Alejandro and they have guys like Jamiro and even Brendan Aronson, who you could you could play as a shuttler if you wanted. Where they're just kind of two. Every everybody on the team is kind of like a two way grinder. You know, um, yeah. I guess the question for you is like, what kind of what changed over the years, or um, what why are they more why are they successful doing this versus maybe the approach in years past? I'm a big fan of a 4-4-2 diamond. I played it when I was in Miami at Alessandro Nesta. It is my favorite position. You need smart midfielders. You need two-way midfielders. And finally, Jim has the players that kind of play the game how he sees it. I played with Jim when I was at Chivas. And one of the things Jim always taught me as a teammate and, you know, as one of his players is he loves playing with two forwards. Playing in the MLS or any league, but in particular, the MLS, you don't see many teams playing with two forwards. Most teams play a 4-2-3-1, you know, a 4-3-3. So you oftentimes have a 2v1 in the back, you know, against your striker, and then you try to overrun the midfield. Well, because most teams play with a three-man midfield of sorts, the Union have a numbers-up advantage in the center of the park. But I think the guy that's been stepping up, especially in the last game, was Alejandro Bedoya. Mm-hmm. His ability to stay wide gives balance, almost as if he's a winger, gives balance and allows Montero to come in as another central midfielder. And on the other side, Montero's ability to stay wide allows Ali to come. And in a 4-4-2 diamond, you always need balance. You can't have everyone just bunched up in the middle, or else you'll get picked apart on the flank. And you can't have everyone spread out apart, or else you'll get picked apart in the middle. So this team is playing with almost a reckless abandon and attack, which is fun. It is, when you've seen union teams of the past, they embody that. I remember when we played our best in Open Cup matches and everything, yeah. we played with this reckless abandon going forward and this resolve at the back where we fought for one another. And the 
Philadelphia has a rich history since its inception in cup tournaments. And this bodes well from everything we've seen. I think it bodes better and better and better for the team as they move forward. I guess the question, this would kind of be like a two-part question, like a follow-up and then another question, but... um... You, you know what? What in your estimation? Why, why do you think Jim played four two three one for all those years? And number two, when you guys were players, were you were you aware that this was such a, a topic among fans and media? You know the fact that like uh, Connor Connor Casey or, or CJ were out there like getting their ass kicked, like getting clobbered by two <laughs> center backs and not, and not not getting any whistles because they played for Philly instead of Los Angeles, right? But were you were you guys kind of aware of just like how? much of a talking point it was for us that I guess at the time we felt like it was just maybe kind of this like stubbornness and like refusal to do anything else. I think at the time Jim was a young coach. He was new, the circumstances, the instability of the organization, first and foremost, we had three coaches in a very short amount of time. Jim's a young coach, gets the job. And at that point you're just trying to work with the guys that you have. And it's taken a few years I think Jim has finally got his guys. He coached Aronson, so there's a vested interest because he's played a part in developing him. We all want him to succeed because he's local and he's just good. I'm a huge Brendan Aronson fan. And when healthy, this team, you know, it helps that they're a team and they're unified. But when healthy, this team is pushing the boundaries of what it means to be a Philadelphia Union uh, team of old and where the organization's going, this is an evolved team. You, you look at the two strikers, you have no two players who are the same, and that's starting 11. You look at what Ray gives and what Wagner gives. You look at what the two center backs give. And there's such balance to this team, and there's a dynamic approach when they attack. Um, it's almost like, okay, who, who wants to step up and be the star today? Who wants to step up and be the hero to get this team moving forward? And that is a very Jim Curtin way of looking at things. And I resonate with that and always love that about Jim. Yeah. He has a good balance of getting players to play for him. Young players love playing for Jim Curtin. Veteran guys respect him because of the career he's had, and he just knows how to communicate with guys. And Jim, it's taken a few years, but he's earned the right to finally get his guys. And he has a sporting director that wants to support him. And it's paying off. So we'll see this week against a, a very strong opponent, but this team is battle-tested, and I think they'll be ready. Let me ask you about Brendan specifically, and I was really happy for him the other night because I think he showed something that we uh, – it's, it's funny because we talked about it like every damn podcast that we recorded last year. And even the ones that we did this year where you're talking about – I mean, not just not just young American players, but young, like, number 10s, really, who are kind of in a – who have – Typically, when you're playing at the tip of the diamond or you're playing as a number 10 in the 4-2-3-1, you really don't have a lot of space to operate, especially in the MLS level or the professional level. You're going to get squeezed. You're not going to find a lot of room. You're not going to be able to turn on the ball. And I I think for Brendan, the biggest hurdle that he had to clear was to get his brain to sync up with his feet. You know, And and on that assist that he had uh, the other night on the third goal, you see the automatic turn. He feels the pressure without turning his head, without turning his back. It's just kind of an innate kind of thing. Is that to you? To me, it's always been kind of the biggest issue with these young guys, whether it's a Harry Ship, a, a Brendan Aronson, a Paxton Pomacow, or something like that, to kind of just like the, the adapt to the speed of play in that position. I mean, do you see that when you watch Brendan? I see a player is just playing with so much confidence and intelligence, and the intelligence part is something that is so unique to him and young players. 
when I watched this Kansas City game in particular, his movement was incredible. He never plays the same way twice, and he offers the vision and the ability to hit, to hit that final pass, but also his movement is so hard to keep track of when you're a midfielder. A lot of the goals came because he would oftentimes make wide runs and check back in the middle. The third goal was a great sign of that, where he's checking in. Ollie and Ray switch. There's so much interchange in that diamond midfield, and there's interchange between the outside backs and the you know outside portion of the diamonds. And mm-hmm. it's a nightmare to keep track of if you're a holding midfielder. And what impressed me most about his display was his ability to recognize where space was and where space wasn't. If he would have just stayed, I, I look at a guy like Chaco Maidana, mm-hmm. who I loved playing with him when he was on. When he was not on and being the other version of Chaco, <laughs> we get frustrated by it. was a bit of a nightmare, but Chaco and embodies that playmaker ability to find the space and exploit teams to where they're giving you the space. And that will be Aronson's biggest key to development is not just to keep his confidence going and creativity going, but that intelligence factor of knowing where the space is and where teams are giving you space and how to exploit them. Kansas City presses in the middle and they clog the middle of the field. But where they're vulnerable a lot of times because they put so much, you know, their outside backs bomb forward. Graham Susie always bombs forward. Yeah. And the, the wings and the flanks are where they're, they're always vulnerable in transition. I thought Brendan and, and the guys did a great job of exploiting that. Um, it's interesting, like going back to Jamiro um, for a minute. One one of the funny things is like I, maybe you would agree with me, maybe not, but like I play weekend warrior center back on Saturdays, right? You know, and uh, the biggest guy, the biggest pain in the ass to defend, like the biggest opponent to uh, pain in the ass opponent to defend is always that guy who's like got a great center of balance, low to the ground, kind of short and and shifty, and they're just like hard to knock off the ball. And um, yeah. to me, Jamiro is that guy. Um, to me, Brendan can be that guy once he bulks up and just puts a little bit of weight on. Um, but they just seem to like be able to find these, these two way kind of guys. And the reason I made the Vince and Jamiro comparison is because I think Vince was really good in tight spaces too. You know, he had that really good chop turn with the outside of his right foot, that pirouette where he was able to kind of like spin away from guys. We edited side by side. Well, I asked somebody to edit side by side, the counter attack that you guys scored on. Uh, in the 2015 U.S. Open Cup up in New York, um, yeah. and the counterattack they scored on the other night, but it just seems like they they they've had success kind of finding these like two way like grinder type of dudes. And the, the irony I think is that like we talked about Ernie Stewart and Moneyball with his connections to Azed, and it seems like Ernst Ernst Tanner uh, ironically has kind of come in and made pulled more of those like diamond in the rough uh, kind of signings. Just your your thoughts on all of that in general. I think as long as you have a philosophy as a sporting director and that vision for what type of team you want to build, the style of play that your coach wants, as long as that there's cohes- there's a cohesion there, it will work. I think with Ernie, I felt like Ernie was dictated a bit much of this is how we have to play. These are the guys I'm bringing in. Yeah. And Jim, you have to work with what I'm giving you. And I don't think, I, I never think that's a recipe for success. You have to make your coach feel like he has the guys that he wants and it fits the system that he wants. And when you're the big man up top, 
you give him the keys and the tools within the budget you have, within how the organization runs, you have to give the, the keys for success the coach needs. And a coach that has his players, you see a massive difference than a coach who's just playing with the guys that someone else has told him he has to play with. So it's a major gamble with some of the guys they brought in, but it's now paying off. What I really like about this team and how it's built up, and we talk about Brennan McKenzie in the back, there's this infusion of young talent that's come through the, the academy system and through the ranks. So it means more to play for Philadelphia because yeah. they're from the area. Yeah. And you have loyal servants to the club that have been a part of Open Cup Finals that know what the city's about, that know what the organization about is about with Andre Blake, Ray Gaddis. And now you're getting this infusion of new talent that is hungry and they almost play with this chip on their shoulder and you have a leader in Alejandro who is embodying that fighter spirit in Philadelphia and his experience is the most massive asset to that group of guys is his ability to check back to the ball, his ability to time his runs in behind, his ability to track back and make a tackle. That energy is infectious and it's all coming together at the right time and they are going to need that for 90 minutes not 45 minutes but for 90 minutes against yeah. you know, in their next match because who they play against they don't they don't give up they have a manager who I know very well he <laughs> asks for a lot of energy he's very energetic yeah. and it's infectious for his team and he has his team playing for him as well so it's a great matchup and it'll be an amazing test of where the team is at all right, let's pause for a moment so I can tell you about my guys at The Book Bosses, a sports handicapping agency with more than 25 years of experience. This week, we went 66.6% on NBA plays, a strong start for basketball's return in the bubble. With The Book Bosses, I've won on money lines, spreads, overs, and unders, and they offer profit guarantees on all of their plans. So if you do not profit over the course of your package, you'll receive their services for free until you do profit. They can make you money no matter what your bankroll is. Everything is honest, legitimate, and completely transparent. Plays are delivered directly through your phone for an easy and convenient wagering process. No awkward communication. No shady business dealings with a guy named Mikey from New Jersey. This is 21st century handicapping. It's all very smooth, so trust me on that. Check out their packages by visiting online. Go to thebookbosses.com. Or check them out on Instagram at the Book Bosses. I'm glad you mentioned the academy thing because it's it's funny how um, it, it, the, the the irony is that like nobody loves being from Philadelphia more than a Philadelphia. Like nobody loves being from their city more yeah. than a Philadelphian. Like we spend half of our lives talking about that we're from this region, or you know we're, we're so parochial and so provincial. You know everybody loves everything Philadelphia, but all our our athletes don't aren't from here. You know, Ben Simmons is from Australia. Jo- you know, Joel Embiid is from Cameroon, right? So I say to people, like, the one team in town that could be most representative of the city that you actually live in, you know, would be the Philadelphia Union. You know, and you bring these guys through the academy. They grew up here. Now you had a story like Austin Trusty. He It was 2010. You know, he was like 13 years old or whatever when the team first started. So now you have this yeah. opportunity for people to watch this team, grow up watching this team, and then they want to play for that team. Um, it's just a big part of what they're doing now, isn't it? Because that never existed before, having, having people like grow up watching a team, and then you can go play for that team, and maybe you play harder for that team because you feel that kind of like 
parochial, like hometown connection to it. Couldn't agree more. That is the next level of growth for soccer in America. So let's start big picture. That is the direction soccer in America, in America needs to keep going. Young kids are going to games now, not just saying, I want to be the next David Beckham or the next Thierry Henry. Because he's from the area and he came through the academy, it gives kids in the academy system this dream and vision of, well, why can't I be the next Brandon Aronson or Austin Trusty yeah. Mackenzie? It, it brings it to life. It makes it tangible. It makes it real. And that is a very powerful thing. When you're an academy player and you go to practice now, you now have a dream that you can touch, you can taste in ways that that wasn't always the case. I remember when I was with the team, we had Zach Pfeffer, Jay McLaughlin, yeah. and they didn't get many chances. And Pfeff got to play my last year in 2015 here and there, but it was growing pains. It was learning the growing pains of being a professional. Yeah. And I, I think it was missed opportunities at times you know, to not play them. And at times when they got their opportunity, it you know, it became too much. It became kind of this nerves and this pressure. Yeah. Well, here's your opportunity. Now you better come with the goods. <laughs> What's impressed me most is they've been patient with the young guys and that, you know, taking that pressure off of you have to be a world beater. It's amazing to see that Philadelphia is a club that has a number 10 who's American yeah. and he's young and he's from the academy. That bodes well for the U.S. national team in the future. Yeah. I know Burhalter, I tweeted at Burhalter <laughs> and said, I hope you're watching, because from a grand scheme of things, the U.S. national team needs a playmaker. They need a kid like Brendan Aronson. Yeah. Philadelphia Union needs a kid like Brendan Aronson to continue to flourish, because that gives hope and it gives a model to find the next batch of young playmakers. And it's almost, it can almost become this factory of talent. There's so much talent up and down the East Coast, and there's a lot of talent in the Philadelphia area. So I think it can only build well for the academy, the first team. And the next phase is see how these guys get you know, enveloped in the U.S. national team and see how their growth continues. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Zach came on the podcast. I guess last, I think last year he came on, and uh, I had a, and even I had like a Moby on too. And um, yeah. like you, you feel bad for some of those young guys because you know even even back then, like Bethlehem Steel wasn't a thing, so yeah, it's nope. not it's not like they could go and uh, and play play those minutes there either. You know, it's like they were doing the the loan to Harrisburg, um, and you'd get, you know you'd get like your three or four games in Harrisburg, and then you'd <laughs> you'd come back, and that was it. Um, yeah. so I feel bad for those guys that they didn't have, you know, the opportunities that everybody else has, but they, they seem to take it in stride. You know, Zach is like going up to New York and starting a financial career now, you know, so he's, he, he's doing okay, but they just, um, yeah. they just, it's just more, the, the, the structure is set up now, you know, um, it's like, you know, it's funny cause we always, we always joke that you guys were like training at Chester park and, uh, yeah. You know, there there wasn't the training facility wasn't there, and uh, you know it's like you're given. Then they've made a big deal about having the practice facility. It's like okay, so you want credit for something that you, for for shit that you were supposed to do five years prior, you know. But um, I'm glad they find. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm glad they finally caught up to it because it's very easy to um, to cheer for these local guys who grew up in in your hometown and grew up in this region, you know. So. Um, 
Okay, let me move it on. I want to ask you about I want to ask you about your retirement and kind of go through your career and pick your brain a little bit. Um, and I know you did the Sons of Ben podcast with Matt and um, Adam and Devin, uh, which I listened to. So I don't want to I want to make sure I don't like overlap on any of that and ask you some different kind of stuff here. But um, just a generic question to start. I mean, why, so so why now? Why um, why retire now? And and what um, how long had you been thinking about it? And what sort of went into the decision to do it? I remember after every season, I usually go and see my agent and we discuss, you know, do the season review and discuss what's next and where we want to go, you know, contract wise, etc. And it was the first time that I'd ever had the thought of talking about what's next. And I've always thought about what's next and in a, just a fleeting thought of, oh, I should probably think about what's next. But it was the first time I went to his office and said, what do I do after soccer? <laughs> and that was the start of a conversation that unfolded for four months from there on. And he, he's a former player, so my former agent was Eddie Pope, and U.S. national team, great yeah. at Eddie Pope. Very fortunate to have worked with him um, during my career. And he was always so adamant while I was playing of, hey, this is what I see, these are your skill sets, you know, soccer, soccer, soccer. And it was the first time he told me about when he retired. And I knew that something was shifting and something was happening because what he told me was he retired at 33. And he said, how old are you? I'm 33. <laughs> and I knew that he was trying to tell me something. But he speaks in code sometimes. He's a very intelligent guy. Yeah. But he almost leads you down the path. It's like any anyone who's wise, they won't tell the answer outright. They will lead you down the path so you're making your own decisions. And so he told me his reasons for retiring and it spoke to me. And when I got to the off season, went back to California, spent time with family and friends, I just had this feeling of, why don't I spend my off season doing something else and just see how that is. I know I'm fit, I know I can get back in shape. And I trust my agents to you know, get the next contract. And I did anything but soccer this past off season. And I had a blast. And it was the first time in my life I ever had this feeling of, oh, wow, I can be happy doing something else that's not just kicking a ball. That's yeah. weird. This is what my family has been telling me about the whole time to, be on, <laughs> to keep an eye out for. And you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't also say I met someone who's now my girlfriend. And there's so many things, you know, that I was thinking about. And soccer had given me everything and it has given me everything. But there's this thing pulling at me that I, I also sacrificed a lot and had missed out on some things yeah. that I was kind of feeling curious about. And so I came back to San Antonio and sat down you know, with my girlfriend, Lara, and she was very supportive of whatever direction I want to go. She was adamant about me playing, actually. And I had a couple options to go play you know, in Seattle or maybe even for uh, DC United um, and one more, another team. Hmm. Um, but my heart, in my heart, I knew that it was time. And when I finally told my agency that I was thinking about retiring, they told me to take a three-month sabbatical away from the game. And they, they you know, said they were going to tell other teams yeah. that I was taking a sabbatical and whatnot. But that, those three months, 
gave me more clarity than ever. And also the timing of COVID, it gave me the gift of time to really think this decision through. Yeah. And also figure out what do I want to do afterwards? One of the things I feared the most about making a decision was that sense of mourning and feeling lost. And, you know, coronavirus and being quarantined and the game being stopped, it allowed me to figure out what I want to do. And I'm doing what I want to do right now, which is getting into broadcasting, media, um, you know, radio, writing. I've always been enamored with it. I've always had fun doing interviews while I was playing. As you can see, I love to talk. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I, and it gives me the opportunity to stay connected to the game that I love so much. And when I look back at my career, I really feel grateful that I got to play at every single level, came through yep. the U.S. system, feel very confident in my knowledge of the game, not just in MLS, but wide you know, variety of experiences. And more than anything, it's the passion for representing my country abroad you know, in Sierra Leone, World Cup qualifiers, mm. that there's this passion to what was given to me, what soccer has given me. I want to pass that on and give that to the world. And it's almost as thank you in the next chapter of my career. So uh, what I'm saying is you'll probably see me at the next World Cup. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because um, just like two random thoughts. I don't even know if this is even a question, but two random thoughts. Number one, um, I always I always felt um, I don't know if this sounds stupid, but I always felt bad for you guys in a way. Not not bad, but like, um, you know, I'm sitting there as a writer in the press box and I'm like, well, I can do this for the rest of my life. Right. You know, no problem. And, uh, you know, you guys are in your 20s and, uh, you know, you have to kind of start thinking about what comes comes next after soccer when you're still doing it. You know, I mean, it's just kind of a weird because the, the timeline of a professional, uh, you know, the, the shelf life of a professional athlete's career is very short. So obviously you got to start thinking about what comes next when you're still playing. You know, it's like going to your guidance counselor. Uh, in 10th grade in high school and you're like shit I just got to high school I'm not thinking about what college I want to go to you know but you kind of have to think that way because it is what it is so that was that's thought number one just that you guys have that like crunched career I guess but number number two is you know COVID uh, you know I heard a lot of athletes say you know COVID gave me time to kind of pause and be with family and you know they were like available for holidays that they had missed for like 10 straight years you know and uh, time to pause and reflect and stuff like that and I, I was honestly I was kind of surprised that more veterans didn't decide to re retire you know guys who were maybe like on the fence about coming back and playing one more year you know jamal crawford is like 39 years old or something like that and i think he's down in the bubble in orlando right now but um i, I mean i guess the question and all of that is like um what was the was the process like smooth or was it easy to come to a decision or did, did COVID affect it at all
And one of the worst feelings is to be pushed out the door and told, mm, we don't have room for you. And so I knew that I was making a decision that was on my terms, but it was, the t- you can never prepare for the timing. Yeah. And no one, no one ever tells you, how do you transition? How do you retire in the midst of a pandemic? <laughs> There's yeah. no manual for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah hopefully, we, hopefully we don't have to go through that again. Yeah. We've never done uh, this before. No right? manual. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've never done this. So I was scared. You know, I was really scared because the big question that followed was now what? And I love to investigate things and it was a self-discovery process and being at home and having conversations, you know, not knowing what to do with all this physical capacity and still worked out, still in good shape and still could play from a physical you know, standpoint, still healthy. No one had ever talked to me about that. What does that look like? Most guys I talked to talked about, oh, I was injured or my body couldn't do anymore or, and for me, my passion changed. And I started becoming interested in other things along with soccer. And when I met with Eddie, or when I had a, a conversation with Eddie, this during quarantine, he asked me a question. He said, there's two types of guys that retire. One is the guy who, you know, it's a slow burn where the flame is there, but the flame slowly fans out. Yeah. And the other type of guy is the guy that once the flame goes out, it's out. And that was me. Once that feeling and thought of, I kind of want to see if there's there's other things I want to do. Yeah. I couldn't do it. And <laughs> I could feel my body not even reacting the same ways. I finally got to experience what lactic acid actually feels like. And it hurt. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. I didn't realize how much I was pushing through. And it makes me respect not only what I was able to do from a physical standpoint, but it makes me respect the capacity and physical capacity that as athletes, just the the stress we put on our bodies and all the work that athletes have to do. And it's something when you're playing, you take it almost for granted. You do the work, but you do it because you have to. It's your job. And so I've been impressed with the ability of players for this tournament to get fit and to compete and the, the psychological component, how important that is. And from, from there, it was following the yellow brick road of sorts. One phone call led to the next, and it was just asking the right questions, asking mentors of mine you know, questions of how do I retire? I want to retire well. What was your experience like? And more than anything, I kept getting this feedback of broadcasting. I kept getting this feedback of communication, of media. And I'm not the sharpest guy, but I know enough that when people are telling you (laughs) the same thing over and over again, at some point you listen. And so I decided that I'm going to investigate what broadcasting and media look like and just kept reaching out to people. You know, we got reconnected. Yeah, through that whole process, and it's been fun, and I still miss the game. You know, I'm I'm a player at heart. I miss competing, but I was just having dinner with my girlfriend talking about this, and the feedback she's given me is, is it's been really awesome, and it's a really different process to all that energy, all that desire and passion. It's been really cool to transition and shift that into something else. So what I can't do playing every day. I go and work out in the gym and yeah. try and bring that same focus and competitiveness and work ethic, you know, in our workouts. And more than anything, 
travel whenever I want. Maybe not during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Things I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Um, taking road trips, spending the holidays. Right. I got to celebrate Fourth of July. I haven't done that in years. No, so, I know, I know. So, um, and I get to drink out of my favorite uh, turtles mug. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's a, it's a small things, isn't it? See, it's funny because like I I don't I can't relate as a you know I'm not a professional athlete, but I worked in television, so I worked shitty hours, and I think I worked every single holiday for like nine nine years straight. So um, when I finally got fired in 2016, I was like, oh, this isn't so bad. I actually get to do Thanksgiving with my family again. I actually get to do like Christmas yeah. Christmas with my family. It's a small things, you know. But no, for real, man. I would just I would just repeat what I told you on the phone when we were talking like last week or whenever it was like. You you were always a really good quote um, as a player, and you were like always one of the guys that we went to in the locker room because number one you were always available, which we appreciate. Um, some guys we will we'll not name any names, but some guys would just slink out of the locker room and not not make themselves available. Um, but you were always very well spoken, and I always I always thought that you would be able to carve out a a, a media career in the future when you retire. So we we. Uh, me and the listeners will do everything we can to try to give you give you a push over the a, a foot in the door here. You know, um, thank you. Let me let me so let's. Um, I just want to go through your career a little bit. We'll do it in chronological order here. I'll try to ask some some questions yeah. that you guys didn't go over on the SOB podcast. Um, yeah, but just sure. ju- just start me off with with Chivas USA and now looking back, what what do you make of your time there? And and was it was it disappointing to to you and other guys who played there to see the team uh, fold a couple years ago? Yeah, it was really disappointing. My first year, I loved it. I was a beneficiary of playing with winners. Yeah. Man, I'd go down the list. Guys have either won MLS Cups, represented the U.S. national team, represented the Olympic team, just guys that knew the league inside and out. And I learned so much. I think of... A story that I'll share really quick, it, it summed up Chivas, mm-hmm. was I would train, and because I was one of the young guys and one of the few young guys on the team, I would always have to do extra work, and I learned work ethic at Chivas. I learned nothing is given to you, you have to earn it. So I was, I'm coming in as a first-round draft pick, and oh man, I, I used to get kicked. <laughs> I didn't name names, but used to kick me all the time. Yeah. But I would get kicked by guys in their 40s, guys that were only a couple years older than me, and it was a war zone being in practice. Practices were harder than games, and we were the fittest team in the league. We were second-half team, and we grinded. We played for each other. And we also spent so much time, and we were really a team. And to go from that first initial experience where we almost won the supporter shield and we ended up losing to the Galaxy in the playoffs, to seeing the downfall of the club, seeing guys leave left and right, it, it, it's, a, it's such a bummer. There's no other way I can think of something up. It was such a bummer to see that free fall yeah. of the club uh, for reasons that, you know, some as players you, you find out and some <laughs> you probably don't want to know. <laughs> and I'm also so grateful for the timing of my trade. I, you know, no one ever tells you how you should feel about a trade, but I was I was bummed because I really it was it was my first club, and I gave everything I had for that organization and didn't know what to really you know do with getting traded, and not a lot was said to me. You just get called, and the coach coach wants to see you. Bring your playbook, and you're on the flight. And then I come to Philadelphia, and it was incredible to be in a sports town. 
Yeah. That was a whole other ballgame. Yeah, they were, um, it was interesting. The, the circumstances of your arrival were unique, I guess, because they were coming off the play yeah. the playoff uh, appearance in 2011. They had a really good team that year, really good defensive team. Carlos and Danny were yeah. playing really well. They didn't give up a lot of goals. The Sixers were absolute dog shit. Um, right, like right before, excuse my language, right before, this was right before they blew it up before the process. And the Phillies were, the Phillies were, were still really good then, but they were the, uh, on the tail end of the World Series then. Um, and I, I always thought, I, I, I just always feel, um, not feel bad, but I, I guess it's unfair. I always found it unfair that players uh, are part, when players are part of trades, um, that are not popular among a fan base, and and your case is one of those, unfortunately. Where, you know, I mean, Danny, Danny was just a really popular guy at the time, and I don't think that, to be honest, like I don't think that any Union fan back then said like, oh, we're not getting enough in return. Like I think they said, oh, Mike LaHood's a good good player, solid player. Like I feel like this trade is adequate from a what we're giving up and what we're getting standpoint. But I guess my question for you is like, were, were you a, how aware were you of just like kind of the nature of, of um, you know how popular Danny was and just kind of how the trade just sort of came out of nowhere? I was blindsided by the trade. I how it unfolded was two days before the coaching staff came and told me that I was going to start. I, I was just coming back from injury. Actually, it was the first time I'd ever experienced injuries and. We'll get to that and talk about my experience in Philadelphia. Yeah. But I've never known what it was like to be injured. It was always had, you know, just took care of my body uh, enough. And I started having injury problems with my hamstrings and finally got fit, played well the game before against San Jose. And the coaching staff was like, oh, man, we've been waiting for you. And I was really primed to have a breakout season and had a really good preseason you know, Believe it or not, I used to score goals and have assists <laughs> at the time <laughs> as a winger. And yeah, yeah, right. so, you know, the coach says, and it was Robin Frazier, actually is my coach, coach of Colorado right now. He comes up to me and says, man, you're playing well. You're first name on the team sheet against the Galaxy. You know, this coming weekend, big game, we need you. We're really feeling good about it. So I went back to my apartment at the beach, and I'm thinking, man, I'm just turned 25. <laughs> You know, play with the beach. We're about to play David Beckham and the boys, and I'm going to score a hat trick. Life is beautiful. <laughs> well, then I go in two days later, and he said, "Hey, just want to thank you for what you've done. You're, you've been just, you've just been traded by, to the Philadelphia Union." And mm. so I was in shock. And I, it, he goes, "Do you have any questions for me?" I go, well, it doesn't really matter what I have to say to you. Like, no, I don't believe <laughs> Yeah, what the, what the hell is that? And, yeah, and he goes, oh, I forgot to tell you, uh, you're being traded for Danny Taylor. And <laughs> he just starts going down, oh, Danny's such a good player, blah, blah. And I just was like, what the hell? <laughs> like, I don't care. Dude. <laughs> My life has just been thrown to the other side of the country. Yeah. And you're giving me the rock, like Danny's resume. So I didn't have enough time to think about it. I didn't have, have enough time to look mm-hmm. into it. Yeah. Uh, Peter called me an hour after the trade happened and said, Hey, how fast can you get to Philadelphia? And I said, oh, man, like probably a week from now, you know, I got to say goodbye to people. Great. We got you on the flight two hours from now. So go home, <laughs> pack all your stuff for the next two and a half months. Yeah. You know, bring mostly soccer stuff. And, 
tomorrow morning, bright and early for practice. Yeah. We played Dallas my first game. So when you're in a position like that, you don't have enough time to think. And also, I think at the time, social media was just, I think Twitter had just come out around that time. So yeah. the information that we have access to, you don't need, I didn't even have a chance to check anything. It wasn't like reporters are out saying, oh man, you know, <laughs> keep an eye out. There's rumors yeah. floating around. Yeah. It, it hit me very hard. And when I got to Philadelphia, I knew that, you know, it, I knew it, it was going to take a while because the guys in the locker room told me, hey, you just got traded for our captain. And, I, and Peter in particular said, hey, mm-hmm. I just traded my captain for you, so you better deliver. Oh, yeah, no, no pressure. pressure. No pressure, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, like, hey, no pressure, buddy. So, you know, my first year, I, I knew that I had a, a long road ahead and a lot to do to win the fans over. But I, I knew what I could control as well. And it was my work ethic and just being consistent and just giving it all I had. And that's that's what I tried to do my first year. And we made a run to the Open Cup. But there were so many distractions going on at the club and off the field that at that point you just try and focus on soccer and, you know, just control the things you can control. And, and that's what I tried to do, you know, that first year and, and let go of the things that I, I really had no control over, which is who you get traded for, yeah. how the fans react, you know. So, but yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a difficult first, <laughs> first couple months. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, I could ask you a million, a million Philadelphia yeah. Union questions, obviously. Like I, I, you know, I told you I had that book outline. I came up with the outline for the book and I've talked about it a million times on this podcast. I don't think it'll ever get written. But I had some great, some great shit that I was going to put in there, and um, I, I don't know. I mean, it seemed I, I I put everything like I've had you on the podcast now, Amobi, Ryan Richter, Zach Pfeffer, uh, Sebastian, a bunch of former players, and I just I think that the overarching theme of the time that you guys were there at the club was just it, it wasn't they were still trying to find out what they were. You know, there was a lot of different hands, a lot of different people meddling where they didn't belong. You didn't have the practice facility. It was, there was like a, they were trying to find what they were as a franchise and trying to figure out who's supposed to do what and what we are as a franchise. And so there was a lot of turnover, a lot of bodies coming in and out and stuff like that. Um, I was listening on the Sons of Ben podcast. I know I, I, I appreciated the fact that you didn't come out and talk about uh, you know who specifically or name names or like out, outright trash anybody. But I think the overarching feeling was just like, it was just a weird time, I think, for everybody, you know. And um, I guess the, the question would be, I mean, I don't, I don't know. You can, you can take it anywhere you want from there. I would, I would give you a blank slate to just, just say your, your four years in Philadelphia. Uh, l- looking back on it now, what do you make of it? Looking back on it, pivotal. It was a pivotal time for me. I wouldn't trade it for as chaotic as it started with Peter shall not be named. <laughs> You know, Jerry, and, Jerry, and Jerry. Full tear off the field, <laughs> and having three coaches in two years yeah. felt like it, it was pivotal. You know, someone said this to me once: the hottest or the, the strongest swords are forged in the hottest fires. Mm-hmm. And what I learned in Philadelphia was resilience. You, if you weren't willing to roll your sleeves up you didn't fit what the city is about. Bring your lunchbox and work. But yeah. to have resilience to, you know, to serve, not just survive at times, thrive at different times, but 
to get through the transitions with coaches, transitions that are happening above, and you know that discovery process that the organization was going through of who are we and how do we want to run yeah. it has a domino effect with how what happens on the field, and I think there's reasons why it was. One day was good, one week was good, two weeks bad, two good weeks. But what I remember most about Philadelphia, U.S. Open Cup, that survive in advance, that competition was made for the city of Philadelphia. It was made for an organization like the Union. We came up, my first year, we came up with that, of survive in advance. Yeah. We probably didn't come up with it, but we felt like we did. Because that was what we preached. That was the thing we held on to. We can't control some of the things that are happening around us, but in this tournament, this is our 90 minutes or 120 minutes or penalty kicks. Yeah. We we will do whatever it takes to win, and it is one game, and we have a chance to do something to right wrongs and to really give a big you-know-what to the naysayers. And so I don't think it's by any coincidence that the, US, the Union have always had a good run a form in cup competitions because that's what Philadelphia is about. You bring your lunch pail, yep. survive in advance, and you take it to the other team for 90-plus minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the time of the sense of Ben, a guy that, gosh, we know him both really well. When I think of Philadelphia, I think of um, the word loyalty. I think of Eric Jensen in particular. Yeah. I think of, I mean, the rap sheet, <laughs> the, the shout-out sheet is always long. Um, but Eric Jensen, he's still a good friend of mine uh, today. And, you know, going to be doing his wedding, it turns out, whenever we can do weddings again. Oh, uh, so, no joke. Wait, so um, you got you to gotta back up and tell me, like, I, I knew that you guys were always friends, but how did how, how did you yeah. become friends? I moved. I finally moved into Center City. I lived in Brewerytown at the time. Oh, okay. Right when it was just being uh, gentrified and everything. Yeah. And loved it. And Eric helped support some of the philanthropic stuff I was doing, trying to get the school built in Sierra Leone. And we met at a fundraising event, and we just hit it off and grabbed a couple adult wine. I could actually say we grabbed beers. I'm not playing anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But we grabbed beers at the event. And we just, you just know, it's like that first day of school when you just meet someone and say, we're going to be friends. And Eric's such a generous guy, such an outgoing guy, positive guy. We came up with a a saying that really helped me that year. As we talked about injuries, I I had to go through a lot of injuries in Philadelphia, and it was a difficult time for me. It it wears you down emotionally, mentally. You start having questions about your body. And the feedback I would get from the coaching staff regardless of who was the coach, was we just need you healthy. Yeah. We need you, and we need you healthy. And you know, Eric and I met at a very pivotal time for me um, because I, I was not in a good place mentally. I was really down and self-isolated, and he had keys to my apartment. And so Eric came one day and knocked on my door. You know, I was I had torn name your muscle or something <laughs> whatever <laughs> I tore I think I tore my right quad yeah. at the time which is a, a really difficult injury Eric came picked me up got me out of bed I could barely walk and took me shopping and we went to Mitchell and S and till this day I still keep the sweatshirt that he bought me that day and it's 
oh, that's cool. whole cool like skater looking bright colors uh whole like west coast vibe but he bought me that and he said hey from here on out man we're we're gonna have pma and i was like what the hell is pma <laughs> it's all about that pma positive mental attitude <laughs> and every day he would come and we'd go to lunch and we'd go around town and he would show me places you know he grew up going to and really just got to know the city in a way that I had never known it before. Yeah. And yeah. I think in a way that I kind of protested getting to know it because it's just, there's so much every year, there's something always happening. And my last year in 2015, I remember I made a pact with myself that I'm going to give this everything I got and injuries or no injuries, whatever happens, I'm going to embrace the city in a way that I, I don't think I have. I don't think I had at the time and it changed my world. It changed my eyes and it invited me into this means more. Like you're playing for something bigger than yourself. You're playing for the city. Well, you know, but, but those are like, and I don't mean to interrupt, but like those are the kind of stories, like the reason I always loved covering you guys and being around that team and that fan base is because you get stories like that. Like now that I'm doing the Sixers, like, I can't relate to Ben Simmons dating Kendall Jenner and driving a, you know, $50 million car around, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? But like, I think during those early days, like there was always a very special connection between you guys and the fans. I remember Sebastian's locker would always be stuffed with shit that the fans gave him. He couldn't even fit fit anything else in there anymore, you know, but like story, yeah. stories like that is why I always felt like the union was just more of like a, I just like relatable for people, you know? I have a, I'll totally make this story a little bit shorter. That same year, I used to go to Bridget's in Fairmount. That was like our post-game spot where we go, grab mm -hmm. dinner, and they were really, the staff and everyone was really cool. They were big fans of the team. And I remember I came in one night, and we hadn't started the season well, and we, got, we lost to someone, and we, we all played like poo. And I remember coming in, and the staff was like, the price of beers just went up. <laughs> like that. It was a total joke. But it, I'd never experienced that. That was being in a sports town yeah. where it matters yeah. to people. People get upset. And it's not just, oh, well, for 90 minutes, oh, let's go back to our lives. It was, hey, we're fans of the team. We like you. But hey, we're upset what happened in the game. And the price of beers didn't go up. <laughs> they, they definitely... Uh, stayed the same or maybe got cheaper that night but um, it was so cool to have your your local you know restaurant that you could go to and and connect with the neighborhood and just the passion that the city has for sports and yeah. what you said Philadelphians love Philadelphia yeah they do and they really do <laughs> to this day uh, a part of me has so much affection for that city I I now know what the city of brotherly love actually means and pivotal but I learned every city I played in I learned something mm -hmm. and loyalty is what I learned look good bad or indifferent the fans will show up the Eagles don't win fans will be upset they'll be back <laughs> in full force expecting to win next year yeah one one one, one loss and it's yeah. time to fire uh, Doug Peterson one one win and we're going to the Super Bowl you know we're yeah. we're um we're very good at the emotional stuff, but pragmatism isn't necessarily our, our strong suit, you know, but that, that's okay. It makes, it makes for good, uh, it makes for good, um, page views on the website. We'll just say that. 
Um, yeah, com- <laughs> commentary. <laughs> okay, let me um, let me wrap. The, I, kind of a two part question here. I'm going to wrap these two together. So you went on loan to the Cosmos and you played like six or seven games for them in 2016, and then there was an emergency recall, and then they sold you to Miami. Number one, just sort of tell me what happened with all that. Number two, I'm really interested to know what it was like to play for Alessandro Nesta. And um, just real quick here, kind of like background, you know, like, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but in the media, like we kind of like look at some people a certain way because we know that some people are there to be professionals and like do a good job and they actually care about what they're doing. And we know that some people are there just because they want to have a credential and they want a free seat and because they want to get a picture with Thierry Henry or something, right? So, um, to that point, like I never, I, I always like thought of myself that's, that's never why I got into it. I never, I never really thought I was like starstruck by being around Henri or Beckham or Marco Divayo or any of these like big names who came over from Europe, but growing up as a defender and having watched like AC Milan and all these, these great Italian, uh, national teams of the past, like seeing Alessandro Nesta and watching him play and being around him was like the first time in my life. I first time in my like MLS writing career that I'd ever felt like starstruck before, you know, just seeing somebody who I respected and loved as a player so much. Um, so I'm really curious as to what it was like playing for him. Answer the first part. It, everything moved so quick with that load up to New York. I knew that there are certain things I wanted to see at the club. I had conversations with the front office, with Chris Albright and Jim and there's the conversations were moving while my contract was up and you know with the introduction of Pam, Gam, thank you ma'am I don't even know what the acronyms are anymore. yeah yeah me neither it, it really impeded our contract negotiation and an offer came from the Cosmos that I couldn't refuse and at the end of the day sports it's a business and passion, yes, but it is a business, it's a sports business. And when a, an offer comes and it's lucrative, you have to take it, depending on where it is or you're, you're, where you're at. And I took it. And so the union didn't want to let me go and didn't want to let me go for nothing. Yeah. And so the agreement was to go to New York for a season, change the scenery, and you know, if I performed well, if a team still, because the team still had my rights, they wanted to bring me back at any point, great. But it was really a look at change of scenery that, you know, that how that's how the, the whole move developed. And it was a really difficult decision because it, it was also the first time in my career where I, I stood up for myself. I said, hey, this is what I think I'm worth. I'm not asking for to break the bank, mm-hmm. but I've been a servant to this club. You're communicating that you think I'm worth something to this club let's talk business and I would have never thought that that would have led me to moving to Miami playing for Giovanni Sabarisi was incredible it was he was a coach that just had a passion that was different yeah. a South American Italian flair and made the game come alive and really challenged me on a tactical level and he was a great preparation for going to Miami and when the Miami move happened, I was in lower Manhattan meeting with friends for lunch. Mm-hmm. And I can, I always remember the place when I'm in New York, but I can't remember it for the life of me. And my, fo- my phone goes off. So actually, prior to that, I go into, um, I go to practice that morning and Gio 
pulls me aside and he says, you don't play here anymore. And I, I go, what do you mean? Like, did Philly, are you releasing me? Or <laughs> did Philly cut me? Yeah. And he was like, no, you don't play here. What you need to know is there's a team in Miami who they're in the process of buying you. And so you're no longer with us. And he just felt it was due diligence. He was like, I like you. I care about you. You've played well for me. Yeah. And you need to know. So it was, I was in shock. And I had 36 hours to make a decision. And in 36 hours from that meeting with Gio before practice, I was on a flight to Miami. <laughs> no shit. Oh. It is incredible how quick things move in sports yeah. life, really in sports things happen fast and so I thought New York gave me an offer I couldn't refuse Miami gave me the greatest offer and had nothing to do with money it was come to Miami FC we want to build an organization around you hmm. and I didn't re- you don't realize until someone offers you something intangible like that and it's also tangible it's what you've been looking for your whole life or your whole career. And for me, I always wanted to be a cornerstone of an organization to say, I was part of that. I helped build that. And we took it from nothing to something that mattered. And and to, to do it with Alessandro Nesta was incredible. Playing for Nesta, he's so different from the Nesta. There's a humanity to him that mm-hmm. I really enjoyed getting to know in that first year I learned more Italian swear words <laughs> than <laughs> I ever thought. Uh, I won't say some of them on the, this podcast, maybe the next one. But uh, I learned tactics with him. Yeah. That four four two diamond, that's what I said earlier, I love it. That's what we played. He challenged me tactically. He challenged me physically in terms of the fitness demand he had on me. And he brought up something in me that I, I knew I always wanted, but he taught me how to be a leader. And it was my second year that he made me captain. And what he told me when I asked him, why did you, why me? Why, if everyone on the team, are you choosing me? I, I want to know why before we start the season. Yeah. He said that um, all the captains, so the greatest leader he's ever known, the greatest captain he's ever known is Paulo Maldini. Yep. And Paulo is a guy who showed up to practice and was not the most vocal person. But when he spoke, people listened. And he led by example. It was infectious. When you didn't know what to do on the field or off the field, you went to Paulo, and he would make everything better or try. And he said, all a captain is is a guy who's a general, and all a general is is a guy who was once a soldier and through a lot of scars that he's earned through many battles. He's earned the respect of the men around him. Mm-hmm. And he said, you've earned a lot of scars with your time at MLS and your time here, and you've shown resilience. And he said, I knew that if I named you captain, the biggest winner would not be you. It would be this organization and this team. This was always what you were going to be, and that's why I brought you here. Hmm. And that, I mean, that changed everything for me. That's awesome, man. From a leadership standpoint. Yeah. Because it's coming from the one of the best defenders in the history of the game. (laughs) He's won everything. Yeah. I think except for Europe. Yeah. He's literally won everything. Yeah. The best players, Ballon d'Or winners, and he saw something in me that I think other people saw, but he his biggest thing was, it's time. I see this thing, yeah. and other people see, and it's time to, to, to put you in a place that you belong. And 
I loved every minute of it, and we smashed records, and you know, it's something that I look back on uh, that I'm very proud of, and I was really proud up until the week folded. <laughs> so another, <laughs> another crazy uh, story, you know, that, that comes with that. Um, okay, so let me see. We're about we're about an hour in here. I only have two more for you. Let me actually let, let me wrap these two together. So, um, so tell me how you got to Cincinnati and whether there was a chance to go to MLS with Cincinnati. And then uh, tell me about your time in um, in San Antonio. Cincinnati was a move that I didn't see coming. That seems to be a theme <laughs> throughout my career. Yeah, right, right. Jesus. Uh, every move was something I didn't see coming, not planned. And it it was so unique how it unfolded. So the league was, the NASL was crumbling, and as I was kind of in denial about it because you know you leave the league, you're living in Miami, Florida, which is like Disneyland for adults. Yeah. And you know you get to play the game you love. How could life get any better? And when the league finally goes to a place where we're all getting notification that guys are leaving, guys are jumping ship, guys are getting contracts elsewhere, teams are poaching players throughout the NASL, organizations are leaving, it was scary because I thought, oh man, I've come all this way. I only left MLS a year and a half or two years before just to be playing potentially amateur soccer how did I get here? Mm-hmm. And I was out paddleboarding in South Beach and it happened to just bring my phone on my paddleboard and I'm about to take a nap and my my phone goes off and it's the coach of FC Cincinnati at the time, Alan Koch. Yeah. And he said, I would like for to, to be the first to welcome you to FC Cincinnati. And my first reaction was almost like, who the hell, like, who the hell are you, dude? How'd yeah, you get my number? <laughs> I thought, I thought someone was kidding. So I, I was adamant. I was like, yeah, we've never talked before. So uh, thank you, but I, I, what's going on? It's and a nice it's a nice gesture, but, you're, but at the same time, yeah. you're thinking, like, what the fuck is this? So I've, I'm flabbergasted. So <laughs> I talked to Eddie and you know, my other agent, Mike, at the time, and they said, yeah. You know, we've been working behind the scenes, and Cincinnati really wants you. So I had a week <laughs> until the deal was finalized, and it was the best kept secret at the time, where none of the guys up in Cincinnati knew that I was coming. And you know, Miami FC finally signed the transfer for me to go from uh, NASL to USL, mm-hmm. and ended up getting to Cincinnati. Is probably almost a third of the way through the season. I was really out of shape because playing at the MPSL level isn't, you know, you don't need the same physical capacity as you would at USL and definitely not at the MLS. So that was weird to be coming in the middle of the season. And we had a strong team. We had a lot of MLS experience. We had a lot of foreign players. We had guys that I I thought a lot of guys should, should could make MLS rosters even today. Yeah. So let's, just say I was not too high on the depth chart. When you come in late, you're unfit. And you know, the team has a lot of high expectations and you're trying to play for MLS contract. What got me through that time of uncertainty and that transition period to Cincinnati was this. There's nothing that will make you stronger than when you think or face the possibility that you might actually lose something. 
Yeah. You tend to appreciate it that much more. Yeah. Yeah. And the realization that, oh, wow, this could be the last soccer, professional soccer game I play. My career could be over. You know, it was very, it was sobering for me, very sobering. And when I got to Cincinnati, I learned the word gratitude that I was grateful for every minute I got to play. Initially, it was five minutes there, 10 minutes there, 30 minutes. I got my fitness up. I got my confidence up. I got the rust off. And I knew, I remembered something throughout my career is if you continue to bring your work ethic, if you continue to bring the professionalism, the passion, the desire, you will get your time. The ball, the ball never lies. Mm-hmm. And football has a way for rewarding those who work hard. And it's always when you least expect it. So I knew my time was coming. I was getting sharper. I was feeling it. And it came after we lost to uh, the rivals, Louisville. And we kind of humiliated by them. And they just made the MLS announcement. And everyone else was playing with this sense of pressure. Like they were on an addition that every game could be the game they get it wrong. And I felt like I was playing with this sense of just gratitude of, I'm just grateful to be playing this game that I love. <laughs> I'm going to give it everything. I'm going to literally give it everything that I can and enjoy the moment. And it was a powerful feeling. It was a, just a, such a growing moment for me. And we were able to, to also have a historic season and win the USO regular season championship. Mm-hmm. The only trophy the, the club had in the trophy cabinet. And at that time, they came up to me in July and said, you're going to be part of the MLS plans for next year. Huh. You, you don't have to show anything else. So I thought, dude, awesome. I'm just going to go back to playing soccer, but let's talk. So the plans were to have a conversation in October when the season, you know, when they're going to start having conversations with different guys yeah. about it. And when we won the last game against Nashville in the regular season, I thought it had done enough. Everything had shown. I was playing regularly and a theme that happened was when I played the team won so when that tends to happen you think good things follow so it was such a bummer in the end uh, to be cut you know, to not be one of the guys chosen I think I was probably the last guy cut from that USL roster yeah. didn't transition to MLS and you know but there's always blessings in disguise and seeing what has unfolded since with I don't think it any other guys from that USL team, I think Spencer Ritchie and Patel Osh were already on MLS contract. Yeah. None of the US got, USL guys survived. And, you know, it was, maybe the timing wasn't right. For whatever reasons, you know, sure reasons that I'll probably find out now that I'm retired. <laughs> yeah. But it just wasn't meant to be with that club. And I was, I was really bummed because I, I always wanted to come back to the league and felt like there were all these different experiences that I learned in the wilderness, if you will, of being out of the league that made me a better player than I was while I was in the league. And I wanted to show that one more time and win a championship, win a U.S. Open Cup or be a part of a winning team. I never experienced mm-hmm. that yeah. in the MLS to be a part of a consistent winning team. And I got to experience that a lot in the USL. And I finally felt like, oh, man, I finally have the tools and the experience to fulfill that potential in the league. And it just wasn't meant to be. So it was a bummer. And then because the the decision by Cincinnati was made very late in January, right before preseason, Hmm. it left me in a tough spot where I kept telling teams, "Mm, I kind of want to, I'm in talks with Cincinnati. 
that evil cease and God kept saying we'll see we'll see yeah. it didn't materialize so I got a phone call from San Antonio FC the coach Darren Powell at the time who I knew Darren he knows my college coach Dave Vidovich very well he coached on my uh, college teammates and he said why don't you come down to San Antonio we're building something and man if you're telling me you're building something even if it's Legos I'll be there tomorrow so he tells me that and he says, we need a veteran guy. We need your experience. We need leadership. We have a talented group of guys and we need a leader. Come down to San Antonio. So I said, you got my S, came down to San Antonio. And it was, it was a frustrating experience. I'll be very honest about that. Because mm-hmm. we had all the talent. We probably had the most talented roster in the USL, but it just felt like a chaotic experience with, you know, there's stuff happening off the field and, you know, we didn't have enough leadership in the locker room, you know, inside the locker room. It, it, when you're having to deal with stuff off the field constantly, it becomes draining. And I think there are probably too many chiefs and not enough Indians inside the locker room. Yeah. And it just, it wasn't a, it wasn't a good culture that um, was happening for us. And there was this pressure it felt like was coming externally and we didn't really know. And it just, it was distraction after distraction. And so we get to the last game of the regular season. It's despite all of that. And we have a chance to make the playoffs. We're now on a run where we could win home games. We couldn't win away games, which that inconsistency costs you in the end. Hmm. So we have Colorado switchback circled by the calendar. And it's my former coach in Cincinnati, Alan Koch. Yeah. We're playing against. Yeah. And I went to the guys, and I said, give me the ball. <laughs> like, you know when you have that? Get out of my way, give me the ball. That yeah, was yeah, like, yeah. give me the damn ball game. And so we're up 2-0, and we think we're, we're almost there, and just the unthinkable happens. We give up two late goals, and you can just feel it in the air that it, it wasn't meant to be for yeah. the season. Yeah. And, you know, we ended up getting knocked out of the playoffs. Every result went against us, and... You know, but we, for me, last year we didn't we didn't do enough. We weren't consistent enough to to warrant being in the playoffs. Uh, I, I will say this: had we made the playoffs, I think we actually would have won it because we'd all been through so much individually and as a group, and endured so much of the inconsistencies and some of the distractions happening, you know, in and out of the club. That you get to that place in a knockout tournament, and you think, let's just win it. Let's just reward each other by just winning it. Yeah. See what happens. And that was definitely the feeling of let's just get to the playoffs and we like our chances. So you know, the, the club is watching. I still watch the club. I live here in San Antonio and they started the season really well. And it looks like they've gone very young. Uh, they, uh, I mean, gosh, you know, you can't say enough good things about mm-hmm. you know, former clubs when, when they're playing well. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was, it was kind of, bittersweet to have that to have that be a season like that I should say be the, the last season playing season in my career but yeah. I wouldn't trade the way my career is gone for anything I've learned a lot I've grown a lot and I mean the man I am today is because of the experiences I had good bad or indifferent and I love more opportunities to come to share stories uh, maybe we'll we'll have to do the podcast after dark to, to share the really good ones. <laughs> uh, when you come up with that, that'll 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 be on the the private channel. <laughs> that's right. We'll do. We'll have to do. A, we'll have to do a follow up that's a little a little bit more explicit for sure. 
Um, yeah. No, listen, I, I only um, and thanks for hanging on as long as you did. I only got one more one more question for this uh, for this episode, um, and this is um, this is something that I ask every former player, former coach that I've had on the show, um, and it's kind of the the theme is about kind of the fans and the media and um you know because we obviously look at the game a certain way externally we don't know what the game plan is we don't know if they're asking ray to hang back and defend or if they're asking him to go forward at all so i always like to ask former players um you know if there's one thing that fans and media should spend more time focusing on or if there's a topic that's overrated or if you you could direct the conversation a little bit more when it came to us um, what one thing would you have us try to look at differently? Wow, that is a great question. You ask really good questions. Everybody's, everybody you says can, that's a good question. That's why I always ask. These, these questions are awesome. <laughs> Jeez, I'm, we're, as athletes, we're human beings. We're now in a space where we talk about it's, it's safe to talk about mental, mental health. It's safe to talk to humanize athletes in ways that it wasn't before in ways athletes didn't feel comfortable doing before. The one thing that yeah. I always gravitate towards, I thought you did it, I thought Dave did it as well, um, is the there's just comfort level, there's just humanity. The people, the right people in media show. And look, the, the story comes first. But I think always remember that athletes were, were human beings too. Yeah. We mess up. We're paid not to mess up. <laughs> uh, some of us are paid a lot to not mess up. But at the end of the day, there's always a reason behind a bad game. There's always a reason. Um, and everyone loves a good scapegoat. And, you know, I think in media, it's always remembering that, look, players are human beings too. And not every play, not every goal is a terrible, horrific play. Not every botched save is the worst play I've ever seen. And I think, you know, just being realistic, you know, yeah, if you get beat 10-0, that's awful. <laughs> <laughs> um, if, you know, you make a, a routine save, it's not the greatest save. It's not an awesome save. I think just really getting back, just getting back to just the power of sports, um, you know, going around and around. But I think two things for me, Athletes are human beings. Get to know, get to know athletes yeah. to the extent that they'll let you. Everyone has a story, and I think that athletes, as athletes, we feel comfortable and more prone to open up to the media if we feel like we're not being vilified, especially in our most difficult moments. Yeah. If the media humanizes those things, you're more likely to get more of a response, and we remember those things. And yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, especially Philadelphia media, embrace the team, man. <laughs> I know Negadelphia Neg is part of tradition. Yeah. <laughs> you know, almost like, ah, man, let's not get our hopes up. Get hopes up. Because this team is for real. Yeah. I, I love watching the Union. Uh, this version of the Union, it's been fun. I keep saying it like a broken record. They're made for knockout tournaments. They're made for this tournament. Yeah. And I, man, I, I don't know. Gosh, I watched the last game with my uh, Open Cup final jersey on. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Uh, I, I, I got I got some stick from a couple of people. Like, why are you doing that? We lost the game. Like, <laughs> it was, 
this is a different team. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, hope, you know, hope in this team. And but this is coming from someone who's brand new in the industry. So I'll no. be I'll be having a lot of questions for for you and, and experienced guys in return. No, for two. sure, for sure, man. Look, listen. Like I said, okay. I, I don't. I'm I'm not blowing sunshine up your ass or anything like that. Like I said, back in the day, you were always a good quote, and I was always thinking to myself, like we would always talk about it after the games. You'd be like. You know, like we could see, like like we, the media members, you know, just be, we would always be like, Mike, Mike could definitely do this in the future. Like he could definitely have this after he retires. So, no, no, for real, man. And I'm um, glad you came on this podcast and the SOB podcast. And um, hopefully, we can just spread the word and say, hey, Mike's really damn good at this. Let's let's try to get him, uh, try to get a, a foot in the door, and we'll get him a, a bigger platform. You know, so um, I appreciate you coming oh, on, man. You. For real, no, it was awesome. And um, we'll have to get you on again at some point. And uh, Go Union, you know. I mean, this is not. I feel like I've repeated this a hundred times, but it's not. It's not your grandmother's Philadelphia Union anymore. This team is the real deal, you know. Yeah, I'll be. I'll be cheering them on this week. Um, uh, we're we have a you know a, just a road trip that we're planning just to get away, but yeah, not before Wednesday. So <laughs> that's the only. Not before Wednesday. Amen. So, Amen. Be, yeah. be watching the game, cheering the guys on. There's two. There's so much history there at the club, and Jim was one of my favorite teammates, and yeah. I love playing for Jim. I love the way he sees the game. He's doing a fantastic job, and he, he deserves everything that he, all the plaudits the team is getting, and he deserves it. You really see how much he's grown. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and whenever I can come back to Philadelphia, <laughs> uh, we won't be going to Chicken and Pete's. Yeah, yeah. Well, if, if if we ever get out, whenever we get out of COVID, we'll actually, I'll actually be able to do a podcast with somebody in person again, and uh, we'll get him on here. We'll get some wings. Uh, he can bring his uh, his terrible tattoos with him, and uh, we'll do. Uh, you know, we'll have a we'll do a follow up podcast about that. Yeah, um, I'm I'm about that life, man. I'm all about it. <laughs> we know when. Mike, thanks for your time, man. Um, <clears throat> congratulations on retirement. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely get you back on the show again, all right? Uh, thanks a lot for having me. Look forward to it.